0: From 1944 to 1945, the 52nd Lowland Division is fighting its way across northwest Europe. The writing is on the wall, but it's also on the page. The Army Education Branch sends a newsletter out to thousands of men, all pulling together, pushing the enemy back. This newsletter is called The Lowlander. Hello, Mary.
1: Hello, hello. Here we are again, back with the Lowlander, picking out our favourite articles and the news updates that have caught our eye in the regular newsletter sent out to the men of the 52nd Lowland Division, this time between the 4th and 11th of March in 1945.
0: Yeah, there were only five days worth of Lowlanders in the war diaries when I went. Clearly, some went astray, but the ones we have got show focus on Europe. Lots of reports about bombings in Germany, for example. Still, what else is going on in the war this week?
1: In the war this week. Well, in Europe, in Germany, you've got the Wehrmacht is um, starting to call up 15 and 16 year old boys. So that that shows how desperate things are getting. Um, And the German forces on the Eastern Front have launched Operation Spring Awakening, which is the last major German offensive of the war. But um, further afield, we've got the US has just started a 48 hour firebombing of Tokyo. That's the one that destroyed, what was it, about 16, 17 square miles of um, landscape in and around the city and killed somewhere around 125,000 people. Not good, not good. No. Shall we find out where the jocks are, please? Tell us where the men of the 52nd Lowland Division are and what's going on.
0: Well, finally, the front has now started to move and we're coming into the last days of what started out as Operation Veritable back in February.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: The Germans moved out from the area in front of the jocks who were in Afford and Wood so they start moving back to something called the Vasel Pocket. And this is basically the last toehold the Germans have on the west bank of the Rhine. The, the town of Vasel is on the east bank, and they're basically ferrying their equipment and men and anything they can out of the Rhineland across that bridge into Vasel. And once it's done, they're going to blow that up. So okay. that it's the last working bridge across the Rhine in this particular sector. And the Canadians, the British and the Americans are all squeezing the Vasel Pocket. Now, the 52nd Lone Division, once they move out of African Woods, they head sort of southeast. And on the morning of the 9th of uh, March, 1945, they launched what was going to be their last attacks on this particular part of Germany. And the 4th, 5th Battalion, Royal Scots Fusiliers, they capture the town of Alpen. And immediately after them, passing through them, is the 6th Battalion, the Cameroonians. And they have to capture a large industrial factory complex just outside of Alpen. And once they do that, then the fourth battalion of the King's Own Scottish Borders, so the battalion that Peter White is in, they are going to pass through some open ground to the north of Alpen, cross over a railway embankment, and capture a sort of old, sort of medieval fortified farmhouse called House Loo, And they're supported on the on the left by the, the Guards Armoured Division. Um, the six Cameroonians, when they get into that factory, they don't capture. it. In fact, they get a pretty severely beaten up by the Germans. In fact, a whole company, C company, go missing and they can't find them. They think they've all been killed, actually they've been captured. So pretty much the whole company was captured um, and they were spirited away to northern Germany to a prison camp. And this causes problems for the 4th Battalion because as they're moving across the open ground, the factory, the Germans that are in the factory start firing on them and there's lots of casualties. But eventually the capture house Lou. And really, that's it for the 52nd Lowland Division on this side of the Rhine. That's them. They Once they've captured House Lou, there's a little bit of movement the next day. But pretty much on the 10th of March, the vasel pocket is closed and the Rhineland is finally secured.
1: Blimey. So it's all going on. All going on. All right. Well, let's get started. Let's have a look at the Lowlander and see what they would have been reading about during that week, if indeed they had time. 7th of March, 1945, the Battle for Mandalay. The fighting in central Burma is growing in intensity. More details have been released of the brilliant 14th Army Drive that has virtually cut off the entire Japanese forces in northern Burma. The Japanese had concentrated around Mandalay and to the south around the oil fields. We first drew their reserves by crossing the Irrawaddy, well to the west of Mandalay, and then crossed the river at Pagan. Two divisions were quickly pushed over to prevent the Japs advancing north from Yananang Yuang, whilst the armoured spearhead pushed on 85 miles to capture Mektila. Here, eight airfields were overrun, and airborne troops and supplies have since been pouring in to reinforce the ground troops. Maktila is a meeting point for six important roads, and latest reports say that we are now fighting for Tazi, 14 miles to the east, and the junction of all the railways serving North Burma. Other Allied forces are less than 12 miles north of Mandalay, and in the meantime, some 30,000 Japanese soldiers have had their lines of communication southwards towards Rangoon severed by this daring feat of arms carried out in very difficult country.
0: Yes, it's all going in uh, Burma. That, mm. this is the last really, really big, big, big battle in Burma. But we should yeah. talk about the map that's uh, directly below this. Yeah. Um, I think it's quite a good one.
1: It's not a bad one, is it? It certainly shows who's going where. Th- this is this is the land of places that are really, really difficult. I mean, Yenangyi. <laughs> For goodness'
0: <laughs> sakes. Magway. <laughs> yeah but it's good because it shows you the all all the axis of advances that you just mentioned have shown and actually it shows the chinese as well at top at uh lesio. Um, so that's the Chinese up there, and it's got the uh, crossing at Shwebo, uh, the attack on Mandalay. So that was the 19th Indian Division and the 2nd British Infantry Division attacking Mandalay. Uh, in fact, it's not captured really until, until the end of March, but they get into the city this week,
1: mm-hmm. uh, and
0: they start to clear the Japanese, who are notoriously uh, tough at defending them. Um, and at the same time, um, the, the, there's a sort of another force attacking Mictila, Um which is a sort of sort of enveloping the Japanese, um, and it's it's kind of the last big big battle. Um,
1: yeah, it's, it's almost the last hurrah, isn't it? And this is this is the second British division, which is General Sir Cameron Gordon Graham Nicholson.
0: Yes, uh,
1: and he was um, he he became the governor of the, um, the Royal Hospital of Chelsea. Did, did he really? really yeah. yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, to, uh, and
0: of course, the first battalion of the Royal Scots is in the second division. They are the senior British infantry battalion regiment in the in the British Army. And mm-hmm. of course, there's people in the 79th Royal Scots within the 52nd. So there's a link there. No doubt, they would have known people in that division uh, and in that battalion fighting.
1: It's still impossible place names, though.
0: It, yes. <laughs> <laughs> third of march nineteen forty five. Lord Dawson of Penn, the famous physician, has died at the age of eighty. Now
1: well, you had to you had to remind me who Lord Dawson of Penn was, but oh my goodness me uh, I
0: may have I may have called him the Kingslayer yeah. <laughs> Do you know why I would call him that?
1: Yes, I do indeed, because he, he was the gentleman, I use the word um, loosely, who um, who wrote the celebrated bulletin announcing that the king's life is moving peacefully to its close in January 1936.
0: Yes, uh, and he's, he's where we get the quote for the king's last words. Um, so as King George V was dying in, in 1936, he mumbled, mm. God damn you, and it was addressed <laughs> to his nurse Catherine Black as she gave him a sedative that night. Dawson supported the gentle growth of euthanasia. Admitted in the diary that he had ended the king's life with a lethal, do- lethal dose of morphine and cocaine. I mean, it's, there's worse ways to go. Um, yeah, I mean, I didn't real. I had no. I sort of, I sort of vaguely knew this, but but this is a guy who's put it this way: unless you are pro euthanasia, you do not want a doctor that is uh, in- investigating the gentle growth of euthanasia in Britain. <laughs>
1: But hang on a second, Um, if if we're going to try and find some redeeming qualities for him, you can always look for the good in people. He yes. was also he was also one of the few to um, set out some early proposals for a national health service. I mean, he yeah. he he nominated um, the the entire idea in as early as 1915 16, I think it was. And one of his first acts when he joined mm-hmm. the ministry was to draw up a report that contained the seeds of what then became yeah. the national health service. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's
0: I mean, I say euthanasia. He he was doing it from the right point of view. He wasn't. We're I mean, not. It's not like a. It's nothing sinister. But, uh, but obviously, he was, he was encouraging. In fact, there's a little poem written about him, and it was put in the Daily Te- Telegraph. And I'm going to, for the first time ever, read a bit of poetry. Go on then. Lord Dawson of Penn killed many men. That's why we sing God Save the King. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. 9th of March,
1: 1945. The Rhine is crossed. Men of the American First Army are across the Rhine. From the snow-capped mountains of Switzerland to the polders of Holland, it was all along the river that the enemy probably hoped to make a stand. Behind its broad, swift stream, he could regroup his shattered armies, could rest and re-equip them, and in a last desperate effort to postpone the inevitable, he could deal us a bloody nose when we should eventually strike out for a bridgehead on the eastern bank. It is early yet, but all those hopes may well be shattered by the coup which the First Army has brought off. On Wednesday afternoon, infantry and tanks that had reached the suburbs of Bonn skirted round the town and began a thrust up the excellent road which runs parallel to the river. Soon they passed beyond the little town of Godesburg, whither Mr Chamberlain once flew, complete with umbrella, to meet the Führer. And shortly afterwards, American infantry turned up at Remagen, seven or eight miles further upstream. It is evident the enemy was badly caught out. At Remagen, a railway bridge spans the Rhine. It was this bridge that fell intact into our allies' hands. Opposition was alight, and our bridgehead is described as firm opposition was slight and our bridgehead is described as firm. One thing is certain, the enemy will strain every nerve to shake us out of our foothold, but providing we can hold on, we shall sooner or later be able to turn the whole line of his river defences.
0: Well, that's kind of two weeks ahead of the planned uh, crossing of the Rhine. Do you know anything about the, uh, the bridge at Remagen?
1: I know it's a film. <laughs>
0: Apart from the film, yeah, so they, they, they sort of basically turned up on the 7th of March, the Americans. Um, yeah. Um, uh, under um, Lieutenant Colonel Engelman, uh, he led a task force towards Remagen because they had a, a suspicion it was, in, it was intact. Mm-hmm. And as they got there, they realised the bridge was intact and he, and he radioed back basically to the um, Brigadier General um, Hodge and said, um, well, we can see we can see the bridge is intact. Do you think we should actually get across? They mm-hmm. said, yes. And that went back up to... Um, up to various different commands they said, yeah, go for it. And they, they they crossed it after a little bit of fighting and the Germans had prepped the bridge for demolition. Um but there was a problem with the circuit and they basically failed to blow it before the Americans got on the bridge. And it, it, i mean we could spend hours and hours and hours talking about Bridget Ruman, but basically the German engineers messed it up and they actually um they actually didn't manage to blow it or not successfully blow it. And then, of course, that was the Americans across. The Americans have actually eventually put five divisions across the bridge with over the next sort of, um, next few days and weeks. And then eventually the bridge under its own steam collapsed. So there had been some damage to it from, from some of the explosions and the bridge collapsed into the river on the 17th of March. Um, but by that point, the, 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 the Americans had forced over a, a, a treadway bridge and then a Bailey bridge as well. So they'd actually used that to form a bridgehead and then reinforce it. But yeah. It's uh, it's in the grand scheme of royal, in- uh, sorry, of engineering disasters in the war, leaving mm. the Remagen bridge intact is, is one of the worst for for the Germans anyway.
1: So, so that means German engineering that makes them decrapper sappers, doesn't it?
0: <laughs> I think we should move on now.
1: <laughs> 9th of March, nineteen forty-five. See the world at home. A committee appointed by the government in 1943 has just reported what it thinks should be done about television after the war. The committee wants a new start to be made on the Alexandra Palace lines as soon as possible and other stations to be set up in six provincial centres. It also suggests a yearly licence of £1 to make television self-supporting. But fee or no fee, there is certain to be a great future for the industry For, by relaying films, it will bring Ginger Rogers and Betty Grable into your own homes.
0: That's your incentive.
1: <laughs> you can imagine <laughs> the jocks sitting there going, I a fancy a bit of ginger rogers
0: <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, so it, I mean t- there was no television broadcast during the Second World War. They, in 1939, they, they shut it off because they were worried that the signal might be able to help the German bombers sort of triangulate where their position was and all the rest of it. Mm. Um, but there, it's, it's like everything in the war, even though the war is going on, they're always thinking about stuff after the war once we get through this what are we going to do what's the what's the world going to be like um and of course setting up television now television restarted again basically in 1946 uh and and then obviously the rest is history because the license fee takes on we still pay the license fee nowadays although some people think it's controversial um uh, and the six regions are are still there as well really you know you've got the, the various different regions around the uk yeah and and I used to actually work um, for the company in the UK that actually manages all of the TV broadcasting towers. And the the Alexandra Palace mast is still in use. That was set up then. It's still in place, um, and it's still got television broadcasting on it. Um,
1: is it. Is it the same bit of infrastructure? It's the same eighty year old. Bit of
0: the actual structure itself, but the, the, the obviously the the, the um, transmitter on it is very different. It's a digital transmitter mm. and stuff like that. Mm. Yes, yeah.
1: Because it's also worth, I think, remembering that, I mean, television hadn't been out that long, had it?
0: No, I mean, I think it only really started properly. um,
1: 1930.
0: 1930 properly. I mean, John Peter demonstrated it, obviously, first in 1926, but 1930... And then um, then it's kind of there was actually BBC One or oh, well, BBC Television, which later becomes BBC One in 1932. So it's 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 actually been going quite long. And actually, ironically, we're now sort of probably toward getting towards the end of terrestrial television as we record this, aren't we? Really, we've probably only got another few years of it.
1: You think so? As it was. Yeah, yeah
0: maybe. I mean, there'll probably still be something in place, but it's not like it was when we were we were younger. certainly.
1: I know, I know that we sometimes take for granted the fact that we, you know, look things up on YouTube and find pathing mm. news reels and odd bits of video and such and such. But when we think back to how people were or weren't getting their information and mm. what what the swing of um, communication was, radio was so important. I mean yeah. it, all the way through the 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 Lowlander we we're now starting to see and it wasn't there to to start off with in fact underneath this article directly underneath this this is on the back page of um of, of today's Lowlander. we've got yeah. good listening 9th of March 1945 yeah. home service and the Forces services um radio merry-go-round ambrose and and the arts and stuff and um
0: yeah
1: and and, and it's it's interesting to think how quickly the men coming back to Britain would have then settled into, well, you know, I want to have a television in my home and watch things or not. They'd have been used, used to getting their information by radio.
0: 9th of March, 1945. A VC for RAMC. The posthumous award of the Victoria Cross has been made to Lance Corporal Hardin of the Royal Army Medical Corps for heroism in bringing in wound for heroism in bringing him wounded on the 23rd of January this year. He was in the British Liberation Army.
1: Mm, this is Henry Eric Harden, R A M C Lance Corporal Harden. He was a medical orderly attached to able troop of 45RM Commando in January 1944. And um, was it as, as First Commander Brigade as it then became, they were tasked to clear the enemy from the Roman Triangle? That's and right. They, they,
0: they were the very north, uh, sort of northwest of the Roar Triangle, so a f- quite a few miles away from the 52nd Lowland Division, but a vital part of rolling up that that northwest part Seventh, of the triangle. Yeah, Seventh yep. Armoured Brigade. Yeah. Yep. No.
1: This... Well, no. 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 Seventh Armoured Division. Oh, I thought it was Seventh Armoured Brigade.
0: No, nope. Seventh Armoured Division, um, oh. and they were just to the north of them, or just just ahead of them.
1: Okay, so so he Harden was um, he basically went against orders. Uh, there was an attack, if I remember rightly, there was an attack. He went out to collect the wounded. Um, went out back out again. Um, and th- he wasn't actually acting as, um, a, a, a medical orderly at the time. He got hit. He sort of went down on the second trip out and then got told to stay where he was, but he, he refused orders, went out again. And I think his citation, and, um, there, there's, a, there's a plaque at the bridge at, oh, What's the name of the place? Montfort Beak is the name of the place where it happened. And there's a plaque on the bridge there that actually almost disagrees with the citation about how many times he, this man went out to try and retrieve the wounded and bring them back from under the cover of fire. Brilliant.
0: Yeah. 10th of March, 1945. The Scottish Seaweed Research Council issued a report yesterday which forecasts a flourishing industry after the war. Apparently, seaweed can be used for textiles, food production, toothpaste, and as a fertilizer.
1: Down with herring, up with seaweed. Yeah, that's what have had enough say. of
0: herring when I want a seaweed. <laughs> <laughs> Specifically, types of kelp. I think they're talking yeah. about here.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so the word kelp refers yeah. to the refers to the burnt ash of seaweed. Although that's that's what it used to mean, but it's, it's been extended to include living plants now. Go on, what do you know about seaweed then?
0: Well, specifically in relation to the Scottish Seaweed Research Council or Association, well, it was the council and then it got turned into the association. They basically set this up um, to to investigate what they can use seaweed for in Scotland. Two things, A, to provide jobs for the Outer Hebrides, the Western Isles, where, you know, obviously industry isn't particularly massive. And then also to find out what possible use they could use it for. And it has multiple uses, but in this particular scenario for the war effort, they were interested in replacing the jute uh, textile industry. So the one in, in, in Dundee, yeah, because they could extract certain fibres from um, from seaweed, which were potentially better or um, and cheaper and all the rest of it, and obviously requires less import um, responsibility. If you think about shipping during the Second World War. So... It's uh, similar to the Herring Council, they <laughs> set up a council to look specifically seaweed. And then the idea is also carrying that on after the war. So what can they use seaweed for um, and, and can they sustain an industry?
1: Yeah, it, it's a peculiar thing because seaweed was um, it was used in the... Glass and soap industries in the late eighteen hundreds. In mm. fact, for, for ages and ages, because you get soda from brown seaweed, and um, by eighteen thirty, I think it was that they, they were sort of bringing in 20, 25,000 tons of it, and mm. burning about a million tons of it on the shoreline for yeah. you know waste, waste materials afterwards. But what they realised was that seaweed seaweed is a source of alginic acid, and yep. that's what you, that's what you need to develop camouflage textiles. So uh-huh. the, yeah, that yeah, that's what it was. And when you think about it, I mean, with the colour of seaweed, it's not a surprise. Yeah, um, they were harvesting something like ten million tons of brown seaweed by each year by the nineteen by um, mid nineteen forties. Yeah,
0: I mean things were getting weird because I even entered some Cambridge University research paper on the uses of alginate. <laughs> or- organisms and sea. I, it was getting very weird, so it, I think we had to bring it up to balance the uh, the overwhelming um, trend for news. I think Herring we had to <laughs> we had to balance it with seaweed news. 10th of March,
1: 1945. Castles in the air. The German industrial city of Kassel was hit twice in the past 24 hours. On Thursday night, it was heavily hit by the RAF, who also raided Hamburg and Berlin. Yesterday, it was the turn of the US 8th Air Force, which sent 1,400 planes to various German targets, of which Castle was the most important. RAF Lancasters were also out yesterday attacking two oil plants on the edge of the Ruhr. German radio reported raiders over again early last night.
0: Shall we just take it as read now that every single day there's going to be Huge bombing forces of over a thousand planes. Because yeah. every single time we pick up the Londor now, they just—it's the numbers, and it's not just once a week or once every couple. It's not every single day, but it's not far off. There's over yeah. fifteen thousand, or sorry, fourteen hundred aircraft. It's—it's it's astonishing.
1: It's, it's been quite strange as well because as we've gone through recording these, picking up on the trend of what's coming back in terms of information. I mean, we we, mm. we, we often say to each other, you know, oh, we haven't picked out an article about submarines this week or about yeah. the Far East or Russia, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the, the move towards all the content being about the impact of bombing, I wonder okay. if that is because the, the men who would have been reading, I mean, that's what they would have been focused on, wouldn't it? What's going on over their heads? So it would have been a very natural thing to do to to put that content in there. Whether or not it is the focus of the, you know, the, the war effort but what they want and need to read about is you know what's going on around us
0: yeah i can, think it, i think there's a morale question as well it's good yeah. to it's good to let the men know that, that that this is going on i mean they would have i mean you know when you read accounts in northwest europe they can hear and they can see the bombers going over but just to maybe to read it it's good good morale like you're not on your own you're actually you know, no, you're no, still no, hammering no, the no, germans no,
1: no. don't mention morale and bombing in the same sentence that's just a a Tra- tragedy waiting to happen. Really? Yeah, because the minute we start talking about bombing campaigns and, you know, oh, it was all designed to impact the morale of the no. German people.
0: Okay. Let, me re- let, me re- uh, let me reword that. It's the morale of the soldiers reading the newspaper reports.
1: Yeah, yeah. So yeah.
0: maybe you can structure that sentence because I don't think I've got the ability to.
1: <laughs> what well, the, the reason, though, that I, I um, picked this article out was Castle, C uh-huh. C A S E L is how they're spelling it here but we mm-hmm. know it better as castle with a k mm-hmm. and, and and castle one of the reasons they were targeted I mean they mentioned that it's an in, um, a center of industry but do you know what it was what? it was uh, it was um the headquarters for Germany's Verkeis 9 and it was a, a subcamp of Dachau that provided forced labor for the Henschel facilities which included the tank production plants.
0: Ah, Um. well. If I think what you can do is, when you say industrial area of Germany, there's no doubt some form of work or labor camp nearby where they're using slave labor from Europe and obviously. You know, Jewish prisoners as well. So, mm. it's
1: yeah. it's a it's, it's a fascinating place. Castle is um, secret societies in the 1600s. It was um, oh well, that they had a center of, of um, that they were selling mercenaries to the British Crown to help suppress the American Revolution. <laughs> um, it was uh, Napoleon's...
0: Is that the Hessians? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, right. Well, I know that from Sleepy Hollow, the film. And finally, we go to this week's thought for the day, from the 8th of March, 1945. Confidence placed in another often compels confidence in return. Livy. Do
1: you know who Livy is? Yep. Do you know what he's on about?
0: Uh, I've got a think. I have a feeling it's about Scipio Africanus, isn't it?
1: Oh, well played, well played. So this is so Titus Livius, Livy, um, History of Rome. Yeah. yeah, you've got the Carthaginians that are fairly preoccupied with the Celtiberian War. Scipio's gone across the Ebro and marched straight into Saguntum, and he's been told, well, rumour has it that there are a whole host of hostages there that have surrendered to Hannibal. Mm-hmm. There's, a, there's a guy called Abelox, who was a noble from Hispania, originally a friend of Carthage, and he figures that getting the hostages back might play really well strategically because it'll get him in well with the with, with the Spanish chieftains. But he also knows that the guardians of the hostages are going to do absolutely nothing without the orders of Bostar, their commanding officer. Yeah. So what he figures is he's going to go across and have a quick chat, and and he organises what in in Livy's words is a secret interview with him. So you've got Abelox and Bostar together, and he goes up to 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 Bostar and he says, up until now. The Spaniards have remained loyal because they've figured that the Romans are a long way away. Now, the Roman camp is on our side of the Ebro. It's pretty secure and things are about to change. So have confidence that if you show restraint and if you show willing, then things aren't going to go pear-shaped. Bostar's pretty surprised by this. And he says, well, okay, if you want me to show willing, what could I do? Ablox turns around and he says, send the hostages home. That will evoke gratitude, he says, from their parents, who are very influential people in their own country, and also from their fellow countrymen. Everyone likes to feel he is entrusted. The confidence you place in others generally strengthens their confidence in you. There you go. Yes. But, 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 but I was surprised because when we were circling bits and pieces to talk about this week, I thought you were going to pick... Uh, Thought for the Day, that's from a Scotsman. Today's Thought for Scotsman by a Scot, which is on the 6th of March, and it reads, Today's Thought for a Scotsman by a Scot. The address at Trinity Church Glasgow on Sunday was probably without precedent, for it was given by none other than the comedian Jack Anthony. And here's the thought he left for the congregation. Too many Scots think laughter comes from the devil. So, what about that?
0: Well, my immediate thought is I've got. I'm more interested in Skeppy I <laughs> um, uh, well, well, I had to Google Jack Anthony because I'd never heard of him. But he uh, he's a musical comedian. From he was born about 1900, died in yep. 1962. He'd actually been in a couple of films
1: mm-hmm.
0: um, in the 20s. Uh, the Texas Tornado, The Fighting Marine, Hell Ship, Bronson—so some sort of fairly well-known films in America. But he actually came back and was a comedian in, in Scotland. And um, he's like any of those comedians—if you were to Google videos of him or audio of him, it probably wouldn't be that funny. Oh, anyway, <laughs> it's true. Anyway, he does it. He does this. Uh, somehow, he's been roped into giving a sermon at this church and um, and suggesting that uh, laughter comes to the devil. But uh, what he means by that, I don't know. The
1: jocks would have known him, though.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, you know he he he's 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 a well-known character. He's got some films under his thing, and he's he played all around the sort of musicals of Scotland and, and Britain mm. as well. So yeah.
1: Oh well, but between him and Scipio, I think I'd probably take Scipio as well too. Yeah. All right, let's call it a wrap there, and I'll see you next week. Yep. See you then. Okay.
0: Bye. bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lowlander. The Lowlander was written, produced, and presented by Andy Acheson and Meryn Walters. This was a Hellish Good production. Due to unforeseen circumstances, there are no classified football results for the week commencing the 6th of March, 1945. <laughs> Here's Johnny Mercer, time-travelling back to the number one spot in March, 1945.
1: you got to accentuate the positive, eat a limb, and latch on. To the affirmative don't mess with mr in between you got to spread joy up to the maximum bring gloom down to the minimum have faith
0: Germans off. They were hideous